the provisions that are in the gospel of Jesus Christ precisely, perfectly meet the needs that every one of us has in our lives. God has given us in Jesus everything that we need for this life and the life to come. And the more we understand that, the more we believe it, the more we see it, the more satisfied we will become in Jesus and the more delighted we will become with him. Have you ever found yourself reading the Bible and you read things about Jesus, statements made about him, and truthfully you just kind of scratch your head and wonder, really? Are these things really stated accurately? I mean, don't some of the things that the Bible says about Jesus sound like Sunday school platitudes, you know, that we know the right answer and so we say it because we just know that that's what's expected. And doesn't occasionally it just seem like the Bible gives us this pie in the sky type of stuff that really doesn't have much to say about the practical realities of what we face on Monday mornings. I mean, just think with me for a moment, like Philippians 1.21, Paul says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Really? I mean, how many of us came this morning with thoughts, man, to die is going to be a promotion. If we face death, it's going to be better than it is in life. How many of us look at verses like Colossians chapter 2 verse 3 and take God at his word and say, yeah, that's really true. Paul writes there that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Really? All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge? What about trigonometry? What about astrophysics? Really? Is everything that I need to know and understand really hidden in Christ? Does all truth really come from God? Is it true that I can't study any subject accurately and thoroughly as it ought to be studied unless I'm studying it with an awareness that this is God's truth? Why is it that these kinds of totalizing, all-inclusive statements about Christ often seem foreign and detached from reality to us? Why is it hard sometimes for us to relate to what the Bible says to us about the glory and greatness of Jesus Christ? Well, I'm convinced that the main reason why that is so is because we too often do not fully appreciate our true condition before God without Christ. Most honest people understand and will admit when they look at their lives, they look at the world, that things are not the way that they're supposed to be. We all can see that. But do you understand what the real problem is? Why things are not the way they're supposed to be in our politics, in our society, and in our personal lives? Can you explain it? Do you know how the Bible explains what our greatest problem is? The Bible says that our root problem is sin. The reason things are not the way that they're supposed to be at bottom is because we as creatures made in God's image have fallen away from God and away from his commandments. We have been affected by this fall. It's affected us personally and it's affected us relationally. 
Here's a helpful way to think about our situation. Sin has left us with a bad heart and a bad record. God has a record of our lives. And that record in terms of who we are, what we have done, is bad. And when we think about our own lives, we have to confess, don't we? We have to admit it. We've done it this morning in worship. We don't always act the way we should act. We leave things undone we know we should do. We say things that we shouldn't say at times. We think things that we should never let come into our minds and then we just play them over and over and we delight ourselves in them. Our hearts are sinful. Along with that, our standing before God's not what it should be. We don't measure up to the righteousness that God requires of us. None of us, none of us is able to give God what He requires. Our record in heaven is bad. It's kind of like the guy who has a horrible credit score because he has never paid his debts. He's just let go every debt he's ever had. He's fault, defaulted on it. He doesn't pay his bills on time. And, and then when he goes to get his credit score, he sees it's just in, in the tank. It's down at the bottom. Why? Well, because he's failed according to the standard that is being used to record it. So the fundamental problem that every person has because of sin can be summarized in this way. Sin has left, it us, with a, left us with a bad record in heaven and a bad heart on earth. And until those two problems are solved, we will never begin to live the way we were designed to live. We will never begin to understand why God has made us the way we are and has done for us what he has done for us in Christ. The good news of the gospel is that God has exactly designed the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus to meet our fundamental needs. In Christ, we gain a new record in heaven. And in Christ, we are given new hearts new lives here on earth. This is precisely what God said He was going to do all throughout the history of the Old Testament. He gave these promises, beginning in Genesis 3.15 and continuing throughout the history of Israel, of what He was going to do one day. One day He said He would come and make all things new. One day He would provide what was necessary for our lives to be made right. He put it in terms of a new covenant. A covenant that he would make with his people that would precisely meet the needs that we have. He announces these blessings throughout the Old Testament, most clearly in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. The author of Hebrews quotes that passage twice in his letter. Don read from chapter 8 of Hebrews one of those occasions. Another is in Hebrews chapter 10. And listen to what he says in Hebrews 10 where he summarizes very succinctly what God says he's going to do in this new covenant that he's going to make with his people. So Hebrews 10, 15 says this, And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, quote, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. That's exactly what was read earlier from Hebrews 8 that is quoting Jeremiah 31. 
God goes on to say, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and lawless deeds no more. Did you hear it? There's a twofold blessing in the new covenant. There's what God promises to do in us. And there's what God promises to do for us. Through the life and death of Jesus Christ, God determines to change our hearts and to change our records. He's going to write his law on our hearts and minds. That's internal. That's what God does in us. He's going to remember our sins no more. That's our record. That's what God does for us. And he does it through Jesus. God's work for us changes our record in heaven. That's justification. God's work in us changes our hearts, our lives on earth. That's sanctification. And justification and sanctification are the two great blessings of the new covenant that are found in Jesus Christ. That's why it is right to say that the gospel of Jesus precisely meets the greatest needs that we have in our lives. Paul shows us this when he connects the work of God for us in justification and the work of God in us in sanctification in the first four verses of Romans chapter 8. And as we return to our study of Romans this morning, that's our text. That's the passage that we're going to look at for the next few minutes. So let me encourage you to get a copy of God's Word and get Romans 8, 1 through 4 in front of you and follow along because I'm going to read it and then we're just going to work our way through it. If you're using one of the Bibles that's provided for you in the chair in front of you, you'll find this passage on page 944. 944. So hear the Word of the Lord and listen as I read it to see how Paul describes the situation, the life of a Christian, someone trusting Christ in terms of what God has done for us in heaven with our record and what God has done in us on earth in our hearts. Romans 8, 1 through 4, the apostle writes, There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. In Christ, believers receive both justification, new record, and sanctification, new heart. Now, I'm sure you've noticed that the words justification, sanctification are not found in these four verses. Well, that's true. But the concepts are there. What the scripture elsewhere does name as being justified and being sanctified are found in these verses. Our justification is stated in verse 1. God's work in us by way of sanctification is found in verses 2, 3, and 4. So let's look at this passage together. In verse 1, we see that we are justified in Christ Jesus. Now, the last time in our study of Romans, I spent a whole sermon on verse 1, so I don't want to go back through all the details of that, but I do want to remind you of the highlights of what we considered at that time. The word condemnation is the opposite of justification. So when Paul says that in Christ there is no condemnation, 
He is saying it's because of justification. He's giving us the negative consequences of being justified in Christ. In other words, he's saying, Christians, you have been freed from the guilt of breaking God's commandments. You have been freed from the guilt of sin. When you trust Jesus, the righteousness of Jesus is credited to you. So by faith in Jesus, you can see yourself in God's courtroom and all of your sins being set before you and hearing God declare not guilty, vindicated, free, justified. Why? Not because you are guiltless, you haven't done the things you've been charged with, but because Christ has taken all of your crimes, all of your sins upon himself, and he's paid for them. And so there's no condemnation for Christians. We teach our children to understand what justification is by asking him that question and teaching them to say it is God regarding sinners as if they had never sinned and granting them righteousness. What that means, brothers and sisters, is that in heaven, your record has been wiped clean. If you can imagine a record of all of your sins, thought, word, and deed, and it being completely erased so that there's no condemnation left for you because of Christ. You no longer are threatened by his judgment. You no longer have to fear his coming wrath. To be justified is to be freed from the penalty and punishment of sin. It's to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. It's to have God look at you honestly and say, no condemnation, free, forgiven, righteous. This is why Charles Wesley put that final verse in his hymn, And Can It Be? No condemnation, now I dread. Really? You don't have to dread condemnation? That's right. No condemnation, now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. I'm alive in him, my living head. I'm clothed in righteousness, divine. God righteousness has been given to me through Jesus Christ as I trust him. So I don't have to fear being condemned by God. I've been justified. Christ came into the world and bore our guilt on the cross. So Christians have been freed from the penalty of sin. But a justified sinner is still a sinner. That is, when you trust Christ, you are indeed freed from the penalty of sin, but you're not yet freed from the presence of sin. Sin remains in you. And that's why genuine Christians, sincere Christians, who face the reality of remaining sin in their lives can sometimes feel like they're not justified. They're not saved. Because you see sin, you're honest enough to admit, yeah, it's still there, it's still wicked. Paul has described that exact experience in the last half of Romans 7. If you read back through Romans 7, verses 14 through 25, you'll see him describing the conflict. Things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I'm just drawn to them. What's he doing there? 
He's describing the reality of what goes on inside of a Christian's heart and mind at times when sin is seen so clearly and you're made so sensitive to it. You're justified, freed from the penalty of sin, but the presence of sin can at times seem so overwhelming that you might really doubt if you've ever been delivered from the penalty of sin. That's why Paul says what he does in verse 1 of Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, we have to believe that. We have to take God at his word and trust that because of Christ, God no longer holds our sins against us. So here's the question. Are you trusting Christ today? Is Christ your Lord? If Christ is your Lord today, then believe God when he says, there's therefore now no condemnation for you. God doesn't treat you as a judge in a courtroom with crimes against his commandments that you must now pay for. Because Jesus has paid for those crimes. And your record in heaven has been changed forever. In God's sight, you are counted as righteous. You are justified. That's God's work for you in Christ. The blessing of justification is immense and it provides reason for all who have been justified to be overwhelmed with joy. But justification is not the only blessing that is promised in the new covenant or that Christ has provided for those who trust him. As verse 2 makes clear, just as Christians are justified in Christ Jesus, so Christians are being sanctified in Christ Jesus. Look at verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Did you hear? There are two laws that Paul refers to there. What are those two laws? What's the law of the spirit of life? And what's the law of sin and death? Well, these are not references to written laws. At least that's my understanding of this passage. This is debated, but I think I've seen this as clearly as I'm capable of by going back and looking at Romans 7, 21, 22, and 23, where Paul uses the word law in a similar way that he uses it in verse 2 of chapter 8 as a principle as um, something that is inevitably at work. So look at Romans 7, 21. He says, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil is close at hand. So he's not saying, oh, I found it to be a part of the written code. He, he's talking about law as a principle, an activity, an inevitability. It's like the law of gravity. I find it to be a law that whenever I fall off a ladder, I fall down, not up, Right? Why? Because it's a law. It's a law of gravity. And in the same way, he says in verse 23 of chapter 7, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind. Two laws, same two laws that I think he's referring to in Romans 8 too. This principle that we have working in us as Christians of the law of the mind, wanting to do what is right. And this other law waging war against that law, the law of sin, he says, that dwells in my members. A Christian is a person in whom there has been a change of governing principle. We formerly, before becoming Christians, were ruled by the law of sin and death. Paul explains this in Romans 5, 12 through 18. 
where he shows us how in Adam's fall, we sinned all. And because of Adam's fall, sin now rules and reigns in a person naturally. Listen to Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. He's talking about the inevitability of sin and death as a law, as a principle. And this law, this principle, is that under which every person by nature is ruled from the time of conception and birth throughout life until that person becomes a Christian. Now Paul, when he writes to the church at Ephesus, is reflecting on this at points. And he wants to remind the church at Ephesus, as Grace Baptist Church needs to be reminded today, of what we once were. Outside of Christ. So in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, he writes this to Christians. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. He's saying, Christians, remember what you once were. Remember when this law of sin and death ruled you. You were the exact same way that people outside of Christ today are. And that's what God rescued us from. The Bible uses very frank language in describing what people in sin are like. What it looks like to be under the law of sin and death. Sin enslaves us. Scripture says. It corrupts us morally. Sin causes estrangement from God and estrangement from people. Sin brings spiritual death that leads ultimately to eternal death if a person is not saved from it. Sin will lead you to hell where you will spend eternity under the righteous wrath of God against sin if you're not saved from it that's our condition by nature we all come into the world under the law of sin and death we need to realize that we need to remember that brothers and sisters we should never forget that's what god saved us from we are just like everybody else in this world who doesn't know god and there are some of you here this morning we're glad you're here you're, you're not Trusting Christ with us. And I want you to see that this is your situation right now. You're being ruled by this principle of sin and death. You're enslaved. You're estranged from God. You are inevitably being corrupted. No matter how good a person you might be. And how many good things you might try to do. In God's sight, you are under sin. And what you need more than anything else, more than your next breath, is to be set free. You need to be reconciled to God. You need to have your life renewed and changed forever. And that's precisely why God sent Jesus into the world. And if you will trust the Lord Jesus, 
You'll bow to him as Lord, then you will find God changing you the way that he has changed people throughout history. Well, the good news of the gospel is that God does indeed set people free when he makes them Christians. As Paul puts it in verse 2, the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So whereas formerly Christians, formerly we were ruled by the law of sin and death, now we are ruled by the law of the spirit of life. What's that mean? Who's he referring to? He's referring to the Holy Spirit, the Spirit who gives life. The Spirit gives life by his work of regeneration, by causing people to be born from above or born again. He gives this new life by enabling us to trust in Christ and to continue living a life of faith in Jesus Christ. The law of the spirit of life is the principle that operates in the life of someone who has been granted new life in Christ. It's the new way that we live. This is the way that is given to everyone who is born again. So Paul is making a declaration of something that is true of every Christian. Not only is a Christian free from the penalty of sin, he is free also from the power of sin. This is what he means by saying the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. The spirit comes into the life of a Christian and takes up residence. And by doing so, he sets us free from the law of sin and death. He sets us free from the power of sin. We just sang it. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the captive free. This is what Paul is speaking of in verse 2. You see, Christians are not only justified. Praise God, our record is wiped clean in heaven. But brothers and sisters in Christ, we are also being sanctified. Our sins are forgiven forever by what Jesus did on the cross 2,000 years ago. But also, our lives are being changed right now forever by what Jesus did 2,000 years ago. The Spirit renews God's people inwardly. He indwells us and He begins to empower us so that we think differently, we live differently, we desire differently. He overthrows the reign of sin in our lives. So sin is no longer our master as Christians. This is exactly what Paul is talking about in Romans 6.14 when he says sin will no longer have dominion over you since you're not under the law, but you're under grace. A Christian is a new creation. He's a new person. When you trust Jesus, your old life dies and you're given new life in Christ. Jesus is now your Lord. You live for him. You're not left to your own strength and resources to do such a life. Rather, you're given his spirit to live within you, to empower you. He teaches you the word. He motivates you to live according to that word. And he empowers you to do it. Not perfectly, at least not yet perfectly. The day's coming when we'll leave this world and we'll be before God and sin will be done with us and we'll be done with sin. And then we will perfectly 
obey Him. But even now, He empowers us to live obediently to God with purpose, with intentionality. Brothers and sisters, this is why we never sign a peace treaty with our sin. This is why you must never let yourself get to the place and just where you say, well, that's just the way I am. I know it's wrong. I, I know I shouldn't. It's just the way I've been living like this for 60 years. No. No. We keep fighting against our sin by the power of the Holy Spirit. We are determined not to go on living the way that we used to live under the dominion of sin. We don't have to live that way. We've been set free by the Spirit's indwelling us and teaching us more of Christ. So we can effectively fight against sin that remains. As Paul says in verse 13 that we'll get to, God willing, in a week or two to come. We are able to put sin to death with the help of the Holy Spirit. As Christians, we are justified in Christ Jesus. Our record in heaven has changed forever. We're being sanctified in Christ Jesus. Our hearts on earth are being changed forever. In verses 3 and 4, Paul goes on to explain that both justification and sanctification come by God's provision for us through the work of Jesus Christ. Now, before we look at those two verses, look again at verse 2. Did you notice that I didn't comment on that little word for that connects verse 2 with verse 1? I take that word for in verse 2 to mean that Paul is now introducing evidence for what he has just written in verse 1. Rather than taking it to mean that Paul is now giving an explanation for the reason of what he has just written in verse 1. If the word for in verse 2 is to be understood as Paul beginning an explanation as to why verse 1 is true, then we would have to read it this way. Christian, the reason that there's no condemnation for you is because the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. That would mean that the reason a Christian is free from condemnation, that our record has been changed in heaven, is because of the Spirit's work in us on earth. Because our hearts are being changed here and now. That reading of the word for would require us to understand that our justification is based on our sanctification, that God changes our record in heaven because of our changed lives on earth. But that's exactly opposite of what Paul teaches here, as we'll see in verses 3 and 4. The reason we can effectively live by the power of the Spirit in fighting against sin now the sin that remains is because Christ has once and for all indeed canceled the debt of our sin against us. Look at Paul's reasoning in verses 3 and 4. He tells us here that God did what the law could not do. <clears throat> now, now what is that? God did what the law could not do. Well, in verse 3, the end of it, he says he condemned sin in the flesh. That's exactly what God did that the law couldn't do. In other words, God punished our sin in a way that justifies us and sanctifies us. The law cannot do that. Now, the law can stand and tell us that our sin is damnable. But the law cannot condemn our sin in a way that justifies and sanctifies us. It could not do this, Paul says, because 
of weakness in us, not weakness in the law. There's no fault in God's law. Rather, the fault is in us because we have been weakened in sin. The weakness that we have by the flesh. And he refer, he's speaking about our sin there, not our bodies. The complications that arise from our sin. God's law was never designed to justify or sanctify sinners. God's law is designed to show his righteousness, to show what is right and proper in his sight. And for righteous people, we see that law. And when Adam was in the garden before sin, he could see that law that God wrote on his heart and he would agree with that law. He could continue in that law. But once sin came into the world, that law cannot justify sinners. That law cannot make sinful people holy because of the weakness that is in us. But what the law could not do, God has done. He has done it by fully meeting the demands of his own law in Christ. And he has done it for us. Verse 3 says, he did this by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. This is a reference to the incarnation. God becoming man. A real man. But not a sinful man. God did indeed become flesh. But he didn't become sinful flesh. Rather, he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. Real humanity taken on by God but not real sinful humanity. Jesus came into the world as a God-man in order to do what the law of God could never do. He came to pay the penalty for our sin. This is what his death on the cross was all about. God was punishing the sins of his people. In the flesh, as Paul puts it here. In human flesh. Human sin requires human payment. And that's why God the Son became a human. And that's why he willingly laid down his life on the cross. To make human atonement for human sin. He had no sin of his own to pay for. But he took upon himself the sins of his people. And he endured God's just wrath in fulfillment of the penalty that our sin incurred. And note the specific reason why God did this that Paul states in verse 4. God did that in Christ so that believers might live righteously in the Spirit's power. I mean, look at verse 4. He did this, Paul says, what the law couldn't do, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. In other words, in order that we might be holy that we might live sanctified lives. The righteousness that the law requires is nothing less than God's will. It is what is right. It's what is good. It is what is true. And Paul says, yeah, and Jesus died so that that righteous law could be fulfilled in God's people who trust Jesus by faith. That is, we can live lives of obedience to God's commandments. We can pursue real holiness in our lives. We no longer have to give up and give in to sin. How in this, how is this possible? 
How can this be? We Christians who still have sin remaining in us, how can we fulfill the righteous requirement of God's law in our personal lives? By pursuing it, not in our own strength, but by pursuing it in faith, in Christ, and based upon the power that is supplied to us by the Spirit. As Paul puts it, we are people who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, one of the most encouraging thoughts that we should remind ourselves in 2021 is that we are not left in this world on our own. We're not left to our own resources. No matter what happens, what comes, the decisions you have to make sometimes when you feel very ill-prepared to make them, you are not on your own. The Spirit of God lives in you. The Spirit of God has begun that work that He's going to complete in you. And He will empower God's people. All of this is provided for us in Christ. It is Christ's life, death, and resurrection that has secured our new record in heaven. And it is Christ's life, death, and resurrection that secures for us the new life that we live on earth. So brothers and sisters, we can be sure of this, that we've been justified forever, record clear in heaven, and we are being sanctified right now by the ministry of the Spirit in us. You know, I've met people who are not Christians, who hesitate to become Christians. Not because they doubt the truth of the gospel. Not because they think Jesus is any less than what the Bible says he is. Because they look at what a Christian is, that the Bible says a Christian must be. And they see the calling to be holy. They see the calling to live for God. And they think, I can't do that. I don't have that in me. And they're afraid to declare themselves Christians. They're afraid to trust Jesus and call themselves followers of Christ because they fear that they will fail. They fear that they will fall. They understand something of their weakness, their unholiness, and they think, I can't bear the thought of being a hypocrite. Well, if that's you, if that's you, no matter how old you are, how young you are, I've got great news for you. Your thinking, in the main, is exactly right. You can't. You will not. It's impossible for you to live the Christian life in your own strength. But the best of that good news is this. God didn't design you to become a Christian that way. That's not how it works. You don't bring all of your resources to the table and say, okay, I think I've got enough now. I think I can do it now. No. On your best day, you fall short and you will fall short. What you must do is come to see what God has actually provided in the life and death and resurrection of Christ. And take God at his word. And just fall before him in humility. And say, Jesus Christ is Lord. And trust him. Believe him. Follow after him. Knowing that it is by his accomplishments, not yours, that God saves you and God will keep you forever. You need your record changed in heaven. You need your heart changed on earth. And Jesus is able 
and willing to do exactly that. So trust him. Just believe him. Young people, trust Jesus. Children, trust Jesus. No matter where you are, no matter what you have done, just humbly take God at his word and say, Jesus Christ is my Lord. If you trust Christ, he'll save you. He'll forgive you. He'll empower you by his spirit to live a new life of obedience. And yes, you're going to have to learn and grow to understand more and more what it means to walk in step with the Spirit. And you're going to fail. And you're going to need to keep living in repentance and keep trusting Christ. But in that process, that's God's Spirit at work to take you safely to heaven. Brothers and sisters, we need to see how the gospel works for us in this light. Our right standing with God is not based upon our performance before God. It's based upon the performance of Jesus 2,000 years ago. And our holiness now that we long for, that we ought to genuinely pursue with all of our strength, is not dependent upon us. It's dependent upon Jesus and what he did 2,000 years ago. And his accomplishments are made effective in our lives in canceling sin and putting sin to death by the ministry of his word and his spirit. Our justification is forever complete right now. Because we're justified, we're able to work out our salvation with fear and trembling here and now. We do that by committing ourselves to a life that pursues holiness. In that pursuit, there are two important realities that must never be forgotten. Remember these things that will help you in this new year to live a life of growing obedience. One, Christian you are right now in victory over sin. So you live your life not hoping to attain victory, hoping to be good enough for God. You live your life from victory because you have been declared righteous in God's sight. And so you don't have to live with guilt. You don't have to live with shame. You have to live with fear. You believe that what God has done for you in Christ has set your record forever in heaven securely as righteous. And so you want to live righteously here and now. You're free from sin. It's no longer your master. A second reality to keep in mind is that you are not your own. You belong to God. And God has put his spirit in you. You're indwelt by Him, you're empowered by Him, and you can count on Him. Yes, you'll need to grow in your understanding of how to live in accordance with the Spirit's power. But that's why the Spirit gave us the Bible, to teach us practically what it means to live as followers of Jesus Christ. But as you do this, you can be sure that in Christ, God has justified you, and is sanctifying you. In Christ, God has wiped your record clean in heaven. And he has changed and is changing your heart on earth. So, face this new year with confidence. No matter what comes. With hope, with assurance that in Christ, your life is perfectly secure. Now, and it will be secure forever. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for 
your word. We thank you for this glorious gospel. And we ask that you would help us to be people who live by the power of this gospel, live in the hope and assurance of what Jesus has done. I I pray that you would make us as a church, a holy people, that we would pursue lives of righteousness, not because we think that by doing so we earn your favor, but because you have so convinced us of your favor that we want to please you. We believe that your ways are best. And so we go hard after what is best. I pray for those outside of Christ today. Lord, show them the truth, the beauty, the mercy and the grace that's in Jesus. Open their eyes. Draw them to yourself through faith in your son. For we pray in his name. Amen.